Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it. Hope you're safe and well as we wrap up another week. And we have some things to look at for today. Some things happening in Washington. A vote expected on the HEROES Act. And we'll be talking about that in just a moment. There are calls for and an legislation being introduced to change cattle marketing. We're going to talk about that with Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. How do they feel about it? We'll take a look at livestock markets overall with American Farm Bureau Federation economist Michael Nepview and... The Ag Department has finalized an overhaul of its approval process for biotech crops. And we're going to talk about that with the CEO of the National Sorghum Producers later in today's program. But we'll start things off today with Jerry Hagstrom from the Hagstrom Report. Jerry, good to talk with you. And I guess we expect that vote in the House today on the HEROES Act, right? Yes, uh, the, uh, it's good to talk to you, and it's likely that this voting is going to go on all day due to the requirements for social distancing in the House. Uh, the House I'm watching on television right now, the, the, on C-SPAN, uh, the House is debating the rule on this bill and also on their proxy voting bill. Uh, they still will have to debate the bill and, uh, and then vote. But uh, uh, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer has said, the voting may not end till the evening. Uh, it's expected to pass with Democratic support, and it's unclear if any Republicans will vote for it. And we've even heard some moderate Democrats express some concerns about it. Obviously, the Senate Republicans aren't going to pass it as is. The White House has already threatened to veto. But it's a starting point. Even We've even heard Nancy Pelosi say it's a starting point. So I think she even realizes that the, this isn't going to be the final product. So we come down to questions of when will there be a, another bill and what will be in it. I know for agriculture, and there's a lot in this for agriculture, the question will be how much uh, that's in there for them will survive in whatever the final bill will be. Uh, yes, there's actually a lot in it for agriculture. I'm surprised at the, at the uh, number of uh, uh, the number of provisions, everything from this um, uh, uh, these livestock provisions uh, to the um, uh, to the to the to the uh, aid for ethanol. Uh, this is the first time we've gotten anything on for the ethanol plants. Uh, so um, it's really quite a big bill, uh, and it uh, it lays out a democratic agenda. Uh, one analyst said today that it is essentially the uh the uh the democratic uh, position paper for the 2020 elections so if, if you take everything into account i guess that's true and and it would cost three trillion dollars i'm expecting that the senate's really not going to take up anything on this until after the memorial day break they're coming back the senate's coming back next week but just to confirm some more judges i assume that the house will be out and then there will be Memorial Day, and we'll see what happens after that. Kind of get the feeling the final bill, whenever it is, will be less than $3 trillion as they start trimming some things out of there because there are things in there that are not directly COVID-19 related. So I think some of that will be paired out, and it will it'll be interesting to see what's left in and how much they go with. 
Well, right, and there and and there are changes in there that you wonder if they'll stay in uh, because they wouldn't be able to get bipartisan support or White House support. For example, there is a provision that would require the Agriculture Department to notify Congress on any spending under the CCC, the Commodity Credit Corporation, uh, and uh, that has traditionally been something that the Agriculture Secretary could do without consulting with Congress. So uh, we'll, you know, we'll have to see how some of this, uh, how some of this goes. Uh, but the, the, the but I, I do think that in the end there'll be more aid for agriculture and probably an increase in food stamp benefits, which would be important for keeping up um, purchases in grocery stores uh, with all when all these people are unemployed. Jerry, I'm, I'm reading and hearing mixed reviews on USDA's uh, uh, project here of getting commodities out to food banks uh, and some of the companies they're working with. I've heard good things and some questions raised. What are you hearing there in Washington, D.C.? Well, yes, um, I'm hearing questioning about some of the contracts that, that were released. Some big traditional companies did not get contracts, and some uh, companies that made promises um, uh, that people wonder if they can fulfill did get contracts. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, it seems like farmers are not happy uh, with the way that the Agriculture Department is going about its uh, plans to distribute the direct payments. They held a, a uh, webinar yesterday, uh, but only talked about forms and from what I'm reading, uh, people were angry on Twitter talking about how long is this going to take and, and what are they going to do. Uh, this has really been uh, quite a slow process. Yeah, we still don't know exactly what they're going to do with payment limits. It seems like uh, USDA and Secretary Purdue, were, they were leaning towards increasing those payment limitation levels, but we still don't know for sure, do we? No, we don't know for sure. Um, and we don't know exactly what the application process is going to be like, what people are going to have to prove in order to qualify for, uh, uh, for, for money under this, um, under this program. And, of course, he said they were going to in, adjust the uh, pay, payment limits. He didn't say they were going to eliminate mm -hmm. them. If they eliminated them, they would run out of money very quickly with some of these big farming and, and ranching operations. Yeah, so we don't know what adjusting means uh probably somewhere between where they are now and, and total elimination, somewhere in the middle, I would think. I guess so. Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, the, the, I would also say that the meat groups have not said exactly what kind of uh, payment limit they would support, only that the ones that, that, that have been announced so far are too low. So uh, I think it's just kind of murky out there as to what will happen with this. Well, I'm going to be talking with NCBA here next, so I'll ask them what uh, what they would like to see is how much of an increase they would like to see in that payment limit, see what they have to say. Jerry, always good to talk with you. Have a good weekend. Be safe. Thank you. Great. great. Good to talk to you, too. Jerry Hagstrom with yeah, – okay, thank you. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Now, coming up next, we'll talk with Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We'll talk about payment limits. They have uh, made it clear they want them uh, higher than what's been uh, uh, 
uh, set so far for these direct payments, but how much higher? We'll talk about that. And what about these proposals, Senator Grassley and others, uh, pushing for changes in cattle marketing? And uh, NCBA has expressed some concerns about some of those uh, changes that are being proposed. We'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about the livestock markets in general a little bit later on with uh, Farm Bureau economist. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk about USDA's uh, move to uh, change their regulations and rules for approving biotech crops. We'll talk about that with the national sorghum producers later. So a busy show here as we're wrapping up the week. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Lots to talk about with Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Ethan, thanks for joining us. So let's get right into the uh, direct payment question. USDA still not providing uh, details on this. And the question about uh, payment limits. Now, you've, uh, you've told us before you'd like to see those payment limits higher have you uh, uh, made any recommendations to USDA how much higher or any specifics on that? No. You know, we, we know they have some statutory limitations that they're working with. And the, the last farm bill put a, a pretty clear uh, guideline in there at 250 and 500. Uh, they acknowledged early in this process that that initial 125 and 250 was well below that. Uh, but, you know, they also sort of implied that maybe uh, some of the feedback from Congress had been uh, that they wanted to see a lower limit. Uh, we've since seen uh, a pretty uh, substantial swell of support from Congress indicating that they, too, would like to see a higher limit. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where they, where they actually settle out on that, but uh, we're hopeful to see something higher than what came out in those initial details for sure. Uh, yesterday's conference call really did not clear a lot of that up. Do you think that no. is what is delaying the uh, final uh, announcement on, on direct payments? I, I don't. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of back-end detail with implementation here that they're trying to make sure they get right. And, and yeah, I would agree. Yesterday's, yesterday's call did not, did not provide the clarity that I think a lot of us were hoping for. Uh, you know, I think FSA is still trying to get their arms around how they're going to implement this program. We've certainly raised some concerns uh, about our producers that may not otherwise have a relationship with FSA to make sure that they're not uh, they're not left out in the cold or, or kind of put into a second-class citizen box, uh, uh, you know, because they don't have that existing relationship with FSA. Uh, we're, we're, we're hopeful that they'll, they'll have addressed that in a, in a substantive way. We're hearing that FSA staff is going to undergo some training next week week on how to implement this program. Um, so, so hopefully as they go through that process, there's going to be some clarity. You know, we, we've seen some of these hiccups in the EIDL and PPP programs as well. You have staff that are used to implementing programs in a certain way. 
way, and then you have some, some new things coming down the pike rather quickly uh, that are going to require them to, to be dynamic with how they implement uh, these programs. So uh, clarity of, of intent coming out of USDA and the White House is going to be incredibly important to ensure that their folks know how to make sure, you know, know how to implement this program so that it benefits our producers. We're talking with Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. A bill's been introduced by Senators Grassley and Tester that would require a minimum of 50% of a meat packer's volume of beef slaughter be purchased on the cash market. What are your concerns with that? You know, our concerns are rooted in our, our grassroots policy book, which guides how uh, me and my team here in Washington uh, pursue policy. And that policy book uh, tells us that we are opposed to government mandates generally, and, and specifically we're opposed to mandates on how our producers can market their cattle. So, you know, if, if Senator Grassley's folks in Iowa and our members in Iowa, uh, I, I, you know, obviously are going to have a different perspective because they're selling half of their cattle on cash right now, which is great. Um, and and we, we absolutely agree that we need to find uh, uh, more price discovery and more cash in this market, but we don't want to do that in a way where the government is mandating that in other parts of the country where they may only be selling, you know, five or 10 or 15 or 20 percent of their cattle on cash, that producers aren't forced to, to sell their cattle in a way that's different than, than how they'd like to run their operation. We always want to make sure that we're giving that choice to our producers to pick the right path for them, and government mandates tend to restrict that, and that's, that's just something that we're generally opposed to. You've heard the criticism that uh, you're, uh, you're too closely tied to the Packers. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I will say that uh, in my time in Washington, I've yet to take a marching order from the Packers, and, and I'm not going to start anytime soon, nor is anyone else on my staff. Uh, they do support uh, what NCBA does, but uh, they, they, you know, they, they don't really play ball in our, in our policy committees. They, they, quite frankly, don't even show up to our board meetings to vote. Uh, our policy comes from our producers. That's, that's who drives where we are on these issues. That's who we spend our days on the phone with. Uh, and that's who our, our focus is on, is on making sure we're putting wins on the board for. Uh, you know, obviously, it's, it's hard to ignore that criticism being out there. But I, I just, uh, as, as somebody sitting in the NCBA office in D.C., I can tell you on a day-to-day basis, it's simply not a factor in how we do our jobs. Packing plants are reopening, maybe not full strength or not as fast as they once were with social distancing and things like that. Give us an overview overview from the beef standpoint as far as being able to now move beef into the retail sector. Well, I mean, we are hearing positive things. We are seeing this plant come back online. I think we've got one more waiting to come online next Monday. Uh, and, and then the next phase in that process is is you know, throughput in those individual facilities. The social distancing piece is going to continue to be an issue. If you have to put six feet of space between workers on the line, there's only so fast you can move uh, move uh, uh, product through that system. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're hopeful that as everyone gets more comfortable with these CDC guidelines and, and uh, puts them in place as we see workers come back to the plants, uh, we're going to see that, that uh, capacity continue to increase and, and allow us to work through that growing backlog in the system. Uh, because that, that really is top of mind for us right now is, is the backup uh, at feedlots and, and the consequential backup to the cow-calf sector as well. And to, and to tie the two together, here are concerns for producers who don't see their prices going up, but yet they hear about packers making more money and 
Right. I, I took a picture of this because I went to my local hamburger place uh, last night going through the drive through And as I got up to the speaker to place my order, I see a sign that they had put up on the, right above the speaker. I took a picture of it so I'd have the wording right. It says, burger prices have increased due to beef shortage, hopefully temporary. So that means prices for the consumer that they're paying higher, uh, but the producers don't seem to be uh, seeing any of that. They, they don't, and and that's been a struggle that that was that was happening, and we were dealing with before this COVID nineteen crisis hit that choke point uh, at the at the packing plant level, and and the idea that there's been such a spread uh, that those profits that the packers are are realizing on on their beef is is not getting into the pockets of our producers. They're not passing those profits back down the line uh, is something that we've been working on for months. It goes back to that price discovery issue that's the subject of uh, Senator Grassley's uh, uh, 50% cash trade bill. You know, I mean, it, we're, we're all trying to find uh, some solution to the same problem. How do we make sure producers that are producing the best cattle in the world are realizing value for that? Because right now they're not getting paid for what they're producing. And, and that's a problem that we're going to have to solve as an industry uh, because, you know, the only way we encourage quality production and the only way the packing sector and the retail sector is going to continue to enjoy the quality product that we're producing is if our, our producers are getting paid for that work. And, and right now that's not happening and, and that's been the focus of our live cattle marketing working group. Uh, they've been meeting two or three times a week uh, for, for the last month or two now uh, and, and before that uh, on a regular basis before the COVID-19 crisis all the way back to the Holcomb fire. I mean it, it is by far and away the dominant issue we're working on here in the D.C. office is, is trying to solve that particular problem because it is absolutely killing our, our our producers and our markets. And finally, your thoughts on the Heroes Act expected to pass today? Obviously, it's not going to pass as is in the Senate. And whenever a bill finally does pass, if there's another assistance bill, um, how do you see the agriculture portions of it uh, making it through the process? I mean, I think the Republicans made it clear they're going to. try to take out a lot of the things they don't feel are COVID-19 related. And as I've said before, I think the agriculture segments, which are significant in this bill, uh, you can, you can show direct link to uh, COVID-19. So I, I I think they stand that test, but uh, how confident are you about the ag uh, provisions surviving the final cut? (laughs) I'm not confident about anything in Washington anymore, Mike, but I, I mean, I look, the, the livestock title of that, of that heroes act is, 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 is awfully, Awfully good from our perspective, especially for an opening an opening salvo. Uh, you know, we've been we've been sort of concerned that we might see some uh, some environmental provisions or other sort of non-COVID related business start to creep in. So, you know, the Republicans I think are absolutely correct in being concerned about that. Uh, by and large, uh, and obviously there are there are always tweaks and improvements that need to be made. By and large, the livestock portion. Uh, Replenishing more money into that CFAT program that we know is going to is going to have need right off the bat. That's a great uh, move in the right direction. Uh, so we're we're pleased with where with where uh, Democrats' heads were at in, in putting together that title of the bill. Um, you know, it'll go over to the Senate where we'll start a whole new conversation. Obviously, on that side, there's a lot of work still to be done. But yeah, I, I mean, from the from the livestock portion specifically, I don't want to speak largely for agriculture, but for our portion specifically, uh, it's it's a pretty good start. Uh, uh, but you know, we're going to need to separate that good work from some of the other fights that we know are going to kind of consume this process. All right, Ethan, good to talk with you. Thanks for the update. Good to talk to you. Take care, Ethan Lane. 
Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Up next, we'll talk with an American Farm Bureau Federation economist looking at the livestock market picture overall and the impact on agriculture of COVID-19. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. This is a call for all farmers to come to the aid of their beans. Liberty Herbicide can now be applied on your Enlist E3 soybeans. Superior weed control, greater application flexibility, no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Liberty Herbicide battles tough weeds so your beans can live free and grow healthy. Talk to your BASF rep to learn more. Always read and follow label directions. Liberty is a registered trademark of BASF. Enlist E3 is a trademark of Dow AgroSciences. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. We continue to look at the impact of COVID-19 on agriculture. And joining us now is Michael Nevue. He is an economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Michael, thank you for being with us. As you look at the whole situation, all of agriculture, and how it's been impacted by COVID-19, what stands out to you the most uh, as far as most damage done. I know it's widespread, but do you focus on any particular area? Uh, you know, it's been a real roller coaster these last couple of months. Um, for me, I think that answer is a little bit easy because I primarily focus on livestock, uh, animal proteins, and to me, they're just. I think the the backup that you're seeing in slaughter numbers, the the labor issues that you've been seeing at the processing plants, I think that's been at least in my view and what I cover, the biggest challenge uh, facing uh, this area of agriculture. It's, it's, it's a strange situation where we certainly don't have a shortage of beef in the form of cow in this country, but you're starting to look at you know, potential issues on trying to get that transformed into meat that the consumer can eat and delivered to them at the grocery store. It's been, again, it's been a roller coaster couple of months for the, for the livestock markets. And we just talked about this with Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, but what... Uh, there's an investigation underway, what people are trying to find out. Why, if packers are making more and consumers are paying more, why aren't producers getting more for beef? Yeah, so that's something that we at American Farm Bureau do work hard in our communication side of things to really make sure that the consumer understands uh, that just because you're seeing the wholesale prices of beef and pork uh, skyrocket like you've seen over the last month, uh, you're starting to see some of that passed down to the consumer at the grocery store. Immediately, many consumers may start to think, you know, farmers are getting the windfall. Producers are obviously being able to participate in this. Uh, you even see some uh, consumers out there on social media making comments along the lines of farmers are dumping milk in order to spike up the price. No, they're dumping milk because they literally have nowhere to send it, and they're taking a big hit when they do that. Uh, producers have seen cash prices, the price that they receive for the animals that they're growing, uh, drop dramatically uh, since COVID-19 really started to impact the supply chain. So this is definitely something where just because the you know you're starting to see those wholesale prices and even retail prices to a certain extent start to increase, uh, producers have been looking at downward-looking price curves for the for the last couple of months. It's been a it's been a really difficult situation for producers. A lot of people have different thoughts on why it is happening. Uh, and like I said, there's an investigation into it. Uh, what are your thoughts on just how the, the system, which, you know, has pretty well backed up because of the COVID-19, we're trying to get it restarted now. Uh, your thoughts on our supply chain system, do you see 
potential changes coming as a result of COVID-19? You know, that's that's a difficult question to answer, but I think it'd be pretty naive to think that these companies aren't looking at ways they can uh, mitigate their business from a shock to the system like this. I'm not saying that another system would be a better way of doing things. Um, there's always, you know, some kind of trade-off you make when you have a little bit more of a consolidated versus a more distributed approach, less aggregated. Uh, there's no way to really know if a less aggregated distributed uh, processing system would have been impacted any differently. We don't know at what rate COVID would have spread through their plants as well. Uh, and then there's also, you know for a fact that having that kind of system in place means more expensive uh, retail prices for consumers, which definitely impacts the amount of product that is consumed by consumers as well. So uh, I'm not saying which way would have been better to find ourselves in this situation. It's just the unfortunate reality is we're in a situation where this is a giant, massive shock to the system, and it, it hasn't been pretty. It hasn't held up perfectly, but I, I do think the supply chain has done a pretty darn okay job, the best you can do given the situation. Um, you started to see, especially back when in March, the initial shock to the system it only took a few weeks for those meat cases to start filling back up uh, pretty quickly. And the current situation, it is absolutely a struggle. And I'm not trying to take away from the struggle at farmers who have this just-in-time delivery system and they need to get their animals moving to the plants and they can't go. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. Uh, but this is this has just been an incredibly challenging situation for everybody involved. We're talking with Michael Nevue. American Farm Bureau economists. So now with plants getting back online that were shut down or idled, uh, we still have this huge backlog to work through. It's seemingly that's going to take time because not only do you have to work through that backlog, but you've got the animals that are coming online ready to go uh, on schedule. So uh, you've got this convergence here. Yeah, so this is definitely not something where, you know, you snap your finger and everything gets back to, to the way it was uh, within a couple of weeks. This is going to be a process. It's going to take, it's going to be a disruption to the meat supply, animal protein supply chain for uh, months on end, I think. Uh, I think you, you hit it right on the head. It's going to take some time to work through that backlog of animals. We might see at least a little bit of a reprieve from animals uh, that had been moving through the system and that you did see you know, some producers not put it, not place, not putting placements on feed. You did see, you know, less farrowings uh, at the beginning. And, you know, there were talks about trying to reduce the amount of animals flowing through the system. Now, granted, it might be another six months before you really see that actual relaxation in the number of animals. And if you really think about it, maybe even later in the year, you might see even more favorable, favorable price situations for some producers. If we really did see placements down that much, then, you know, uh, prices may be a lot more favorable, you know, maybe at the end of the year. What do you see happening on the dairy side? Uh, dairy is going to, I still think, going to be a challenge. Uh, and this this is, talking on dairy, and what I'm saying also applies particularly to beef and to certain cuts of pork. Um, the shutdown of the restaurants, I think, is going to be the hardest thing to overcome and the hardest to predict how things are going to be moving uh, forward. Uh, you think about how Americans were spending their food dollars before COVID-19. Uh, more than half of those food dollars were spent away from home at restaurants, hotels, cruise lines. Uh, uh, these uh, quick service food food restaurant uh, food service situation is where most of our dollars are going. And certain products were more exposed to that than others. Uh, beef uh, was definitely one a little bit more so than maybe poultry or, or pork. 
uh, within pork, bacon was highly exposed to the food service sector. Dairy is another one where uh, it did rely pretty heavily on that food service sector. You think about schools being shut down as well. Um, all the all the uh, milk that was being consumed through the school lunch program, uh, we don't really fully know uh, when schools are going to be opening their doors. We, we know most of them are gone through at least the rest of the summer. Hopefully in the fall we'll see it again. Uh, cheese is another one where it was pretty heavily reliant upon food service sector. And that's not something that you can just, again, flip a switch and move it into retail. Uh, so I think looking on the dairy side of things, that's still going to be a big uh, wild card in my mind is how quickly are these restaurants going to get back to being open? And even then, the ones that are opening now are opening at 25% capacity, maybe 50% capacity. It's going to be a long time before we really get back to the way things were, if we ever get back to the way things were. Yeah, how many will reopen? Some may not. And how confident will consumers be to go out and and dine like they used to? I mean, there's still a lot of questions here. Exactly. So we'll I see how all that plays out. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I think the the consumer one is a, another big question mark. Just because the restaurants are open does not mean people are going to feel comfortable comfortable enough being in those mm-hmm. crowds in that crowded condition in that restaurant. As an economist, when you look at trying to restart an economy, one as massive as ours, <laughs> trying to go from shut down to restart. Uh, you know, and the, there's this huge debate now on how to do that, and are we going too fast? Are we not going fast enough? Uh, how do you look at it as an economist? I try to take emotion out of it and look at it as factual as I can. I think at this point, most people have given up on a V-shaped recovery. Um, even, again, it goes back to what I said about restaurants. Even if the economy really starts opening up, our economy was highly leveraged upon consumer spending. And unless people feel comfortable going out and spending their money, uh, this is going to take a little bit longer. I think the more common term people are using now is the Nike swoosh recovery, that sharp drop down. It's going to be a little bit longer than a lot of people think. Uh, then again, you know, this is very uncertain times. It's really hard to predict. Uh, a lot of consumers may feel really cooped up from being stuck in their apartments and houses the last couple couple of months, and they may be ready to start hitting the road and driving, pushing up that oil demand. Hopefully that's an impact down to, downstream to the ethanol demand as well. Um, I think it's really difficult to gauge. Um, I look at it maybe a little bit more pessimistic personally uh, because, again, it just goes back to we may be in a full-blown recession. I think a lot of consumers are going to have a lot less money uh, in their pocket that they're able to spend. And even once they do start getting jobs, their jobs back as, as again, businesses reopen, I think there's going to be this mental overhang around much of the country. I mean, even if you don't personally feel it, even if I don't personally feel it, that doesn't change the fact that there are a lot of people out there who still will be scared to go out there and be in, be around other people, which is, again, one of the not bedrocks of our economy, but one of the ways that our consumers interact with uh, with the economy is by going out there and spending that money. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. I mean, yeah, there's a pent-up demand. We want to get out and go back and do those things. But even if we want to, uh, do we feel safe to do it? And if restaurants are required to, you know, to do the distancing, they can't hold as many people as they used to. So that's going to limit how much they can recover and how quickly they can recover. So many unknowns as we work our way through this. Michael, good to talk with you. Thank you for your perspective. Take care. Thank you very much. 
American Farm Bureau Federation economist Michael Nevue. Well, as we mentioned earlier, the Ag Department has finalized an overhaul of its approval process for biotech crops. We're going to talk about that with the CEO of the National Sorghum Producers coming up next, right here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Pretty big announcement. This doesn't happen uh, very often. USDA announcing their final rule on plant biotech regulations, revising decades-old regulations regarding the development of certain genetically engineered organisms. Joining us now to talk about it is the CEO of National Sorghum Producers, Tim Lust. Tim, thank you for joining us. As I mentioned, uh, this has been a long time coming, really, and I know you're happy with this announcement. You know, I am, and uh, as one of the guys that's been around the trade association world a long time now, uh, this one goes back even further than I do, and so it's been a long time coming. Had a you know, a couple of starts and stops along the way in the process and uh, some bills that came forward and didn't make it. So uh, happy to finally see one get across the finish line uh, that is really important for an industry like ours that, uh, that you know, certainly needs to utilize some of these new tools and technologies in order to stay competitive and move forward. Okay, what do you see in this proposed overhaul, the change in this rule that would significantly you? in your opinion, benefit sorghum growers? Well, I think it clarifies, uh, you know, we've had a situation where both our, our producer checkoff as well as private industry is, you know, really not known uh, for sure how aggressively to go into some gene editing technologies like CRISPR technology because of just uncertainty on what the approval pathway was or what the regulatory process might look like. And, you know, I think this is certainly important for us, and, and we certainly appreciate uh, the administration and USDA moving forward with this approach that, you know, really allows us to look at, at low-risk type uh, items that, that could be done with conventional breeding would just take a lot longer to do and be able to move forward with some of the gene editing technologies that, frankly, our industry can afford. Um, you know, we've never had biotechnology in our, our crop primarily because we couldn't afford it. And so we think this is a very common sense approach um, that allows uh, there to be a regulatory process, have the USDA oversight that is so important uh, for our international customers and for commerce, but yet still allows our scientific community to move forward and and make progress that certainly from our crop standpoint is, is very much needed. Tim, some exporters and food companies evidently have concerns about the rule because of notification uh, will not be mandatory. USDA left it as as voluntary as far as uh, plants containing uh, single targeted modifications. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think if this was easy, it would have been done. Um, you know, the fact that it's been 30 years since this has, has gotten in addressed uh, just tells you that it's a very complicated issue. And, uh, you know, lots of different people come at it from 
from different viewpoints and, and have different concerns. Um, but I think USDA has done a good job of kind of walking that middle line of, of providing what is needed there to be able to move forward uh, while still realizing that, uh, you know, there are legitimate concerns. I mean, certainly as a commodity, you know, we're, we're, we have to be on both sides of this. Um, you know, we need the technology to be able to move forward. But if our customers, you know, can't or won't buy our product, then it really doesn't matter. So, so we're very cognizant of both sides of the issue and uh, certainly – um, understand that this has to work uh, in, in all aspects to, to be able to move forward and you know think what's been uh, brought forward uh, you know is something that will allow that um, as always and said in these issues um, you know you've got to walk through some of these processes to see how they come and uh, you know we'll still we, we still know that that is a process that goes forward uh, that will ultimately find out how good uh, of a rule it is. But I think we certainly feel good today about, uh, you know, what progress has been made. And frankly, that just something's been done. Um, I, you know, I don't know if this is perfect, uh, but I know that it's better than a 30-year-old rule. And uh, so I think that's something that you have to just uh, sometimes look at at how we take uh, the wins where we can get them and move forward, even you know, even if they might not have been perfect for everybody, uh, given the the status and the situation of just how difficult and challenging this issue really is to to get through. So I'm assuming if someone is anti-GMO, anti-biotech, they're gonna they're gonna view this as uh, USDA making it easier for uh, these. Uh, this technology to be used and develop new new products. So they're going to probably be critical of that. Well, you know, I think it kind of depends on the situation. I mean, certainly some of the things in this just allow for, you know, for for example, some items that have that are even GMO that have been through the process and, and we know where they're at, uh, you know, a faster timeline and approval process and a, and a less stringent uh, process there if it's something that's known. So, you know, I think there's two parts to it. I mean, I think there's a part of, of evaluating uh, the new technologies. Uh, let's let's be honest. Thirty years ago, when this when the original rule was written, uh, things like gene editing didn't exist. So, uh, as new technologies come available, you know, the real question is 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 how are those going to be regulated and and how does that work? And I think USDA, to their credit, has came up with an approach that will do that and we will walk forward from this and, and learn from it as we go uh, and walk through the process. But I think certainly, um, you know, a, as a commodity that was kind of on the outside looking in of, of not being able to participate in the biotech side, this certainly gives our private industry companies and, and our producer organization um the opportunity to kind of understand what the rules are now and know how we can invest to make our crop better. And now we see what EPA says, right? I mean, this is what USDA is proposing. Now we see what EPA. And and absolutely. And I think that is something that, uh, you know, their approach uh, has been a little bit different. And that's something that we continue to evaluate. And, uh, you know, we know that there's interagency group that's working to try to coordinate this process across all of government, but we also know that there's differences, so we'll just have to wait and see. It's another step, that's right. Tim, thank you very much. Good to talk with you. Take care. Thank you. 
Tim Luss, CEO, National Sorghum Producers. And with that, we wrap it up for today and for the week. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. Be safe, everyone. Hope you'll join us again on Monday here on AOA.